Well, tonight we continue our series on insights from Psalms with Psalm 22. The title of tonight's message is The Suffering King. The Suffering King. And as you think about that title, perhaps you're aware of this, perhaps you're not, but the Old Testament scriptures portray the coming Messiah who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, in two distinct ways. One of the ways that the Messiah was pictured or portrayed in terms of Old Testament prophecy and Scripture was coming as a conquering king. And the other was pictured or portraying the Messiah as a suffering servant. And as you think about the perspective of the Jewish people after centuries of being Slaves are subjects to various conquering kingdoms, and some examples are Babylon, which was then taken over by Persia, which was then taken over by the, by the Greeks or the Greece, country of Greece, and then ultimately the Roman Empire. As you think about hundreds of years taking place, because even between the close of the Old Testament, and they had already been in bondage to Babylon and Persia leading up to the close of the canon of the Old, Old Testament Scriptures, you then have those silent years that we did a, maybe it was a six or eight part series on, as a part of the Redemption Love Story series. So if you're interested in some of the details of what was going on there, you have 430 years of silence in addition to the years of bondage leading up to that, where the nation of Israel is living as subjects to these other kingdoms. Now, with that context in place, the most, as you think about it from that perspective even, the most common Jewish expectation regarding the Messiah was that the Messiah would come as a conquering king. So between the two options, suffering servant or conquering king, the prevailing perspective was that the Messiah was always connected with the passages about rod of iron and his overthrowing, liberating the Jewish nation, restoring the ancient glory of Israel, those types of things. And that was the Jewish expectation by and large, and that contributed significantly to why Jesus Christ as the Messiah ultimately was rejected by men. And you think about, was he rejected by all men? No. Was he rejected by all Jewish leaders? No, but he was rejected ultimately by most because they didn't see him as capable of overthrowing the Roman government. And so if he wasn't capable of that, then he could only cause problems for them with the Roman government. He could only contribute to making their lives worse than they already were, because they would be viewed as revolting or rebelling against the Roman government, who would stamp that out harshly. And ultimately we know that, of course, the Roman government treated the Jewish nation atrociously eventually anyway. But with this perspective of keeping their power, keeping their influence, keeping their temple, keeping their, the, the measure of autonomy that they already had, the Jewish leaders not being convinced that Jesus was the powerful king, the conquering king that they were looking for, they rejected him. And if you think about where would they base that expectation that was so focused on the conquering king, what kind of passages would they base that on? Well, they would base those, their understanding on passages like various psalms. Now, we've already covered one of them, Psalm 2. And if you think about how the Messiah is portrayed in Psalm 2, that would represent kind of the conquering king motif or him being pictured as the conquering king. 
Another one would be Psalm 110. If you're looking at just Psalms that, and there's many others, but Psalm 110 is another clear one where the takeaway or the allusion to the Messiah is, is that of the conquering king. And there's, there's not much picture there of the suffering servant aspect of the messianic promise. And so that's where the Jewish nation was coming from. But fixating on the conquering while ignoring the suffering is ultimately a form of confirmation bias on the part of the Jewish nation. It would be true even as we look at Old Testament scriptures to see it with that bias where you're seeking out, you're seeing and hearing what you want to see and hear as you are looking at or listening to or taking in the text of scripture. You see, if you already have a predetermined idea of what you want, what you're looking forward to, what you think would make you happy, then naturally you hear in people and you see even in the text of Scripture the things you want to see. And that's very dangerous. Where you already have an idea that you're just seeking to now try to find passages that you could shoehorn into supporting that perspective. And that's why when we look at the Bible, we do try to look at it in context. We try to look at it in, in whole books even very often, so that the context cannot be twisted. The context will be there because you'll be reading the letter as it was originally written in its entirety, and it'll be much harder to twist Scripture to your own predetermined or preconceived notions if you're studying the Bible that way. That's why even in reading the Bible, there's some value to understanding that it's, there is a story here that God is presenting Himself. He's, he's even in terms of revelation, it's called progressive revelation. God starts with a little and he adds to it with what? Line upon line, precept upon precept. As you see the narrative of the Bible unfold, God reveals more and more about himself, about his plan. You can see the storyline move forward, ultimately climaxing where? Well, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then as far as it relates to the establishment of the dispensation of grace, the the church age that we now live in, uh, fulfilling or revealing even more about God's plan as it relates to that period or that that time frame in human history, Uh, again ending with a revelation, the book of Revelation about what is coming. How does the story end? How is God going to settle all accounts and set things right? And so the Bible is better understood that way too, is seeing that it's not just a bunch of stuff jammed together with no order to it, with no purpose behind it. God revealed himself in a very succinct and cohesive kind of way. And he wants to be known that way. He wants us to understand the story that he's trying to reveal to us about himself. And so I digress, but that was the problem. with the nation of Israel is that they're eager to see the conquering while ignoring the suffering side of it. Now, regardless of what you see in the Scripture or what the Jewish people saw or focused on in the Old Testament Scriptures, the suffering of the Messiah was revealed. It is something that was revealed. Now, you can say, how clearly was it revealed? Well, I think in any case, and very commonly, you can always look back and say, you can always say that by looking back, things look more clear or things jump out more clearly than they did in real time as it was happening. And I think that's true even as it relates to the texts about the qualities of the Messiah in terms of sacrifice and suffering and the servant-mindedness of the Messiah. 
that some of that looks really clear to us because we have the benefit of hindsight. And so I think that's true even about the Old Testament scriptures, but that being said, that's no excuse because both two prominent people, of course, Jesus being the unique God-man, both being fully God and being fully man, but Jesus Christ, he stated in Luke 24, 25 through 27, let's turn there and just see what Jesus says about could you see the suffering king? And I say suffering king because as it's the story is told through King David, he is a king. Obviously, Jesus is the king of kings. And so you can say suffering servant, but the suffering king for our purposes here tonight, could that be seen in the Old Testament? The answer is yes, because Jesus says so. He says it could be. So Luke 24, you have Jesus. This is the passage about the stranger on the road to Emmaus. Some of you are familiar even with the stranger study materials that we generally stock in the bookstore, we have historically stocked those materials. Uh, A way for Jesus to start at the beginning and work his way through Scripture, what Scripture? The Old Testament Scripture, so that he could teach these two followers of Christ, these two men who identified as Christians that he met after his resurrection. And so Luke 24, starting in verse 25, that's the context. It says, Then he, Jesus, said to them who, these two men who professed to be followers of Christ. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe what? To believe all that the prophets have spoken. But what is he specifically focusing on? All that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Meaning, you don't understand that even through the scriptures, through the prophets, it, you should have known, it shouldn't have surprised you, ought not the Christ to have suffered. So the suffering servant aspect of the messianic expectation, it could have been and should have been known according to Christ because he then beginning, it says, at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them, now in how much of the scriptures? In all of the scriptures, which ones again? Old Testament scriptures. He expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself, the Messiah. But specifically the issue was people were still reeling from the idea that this Christ that they had put their trust in and were followers of, he had been crucified and he had been buried and that he had rose again, though they're not even aware of that aspect of it. They're just aware of the news, all the hubbub about, in all likelihood, the fact that his body was, was gone, that people maybe were talking about his resurrection. But did they understand his death, burial, and resurrection in real time while he was walking and talking with them? Did they expect the Messiah to be crucified? And the answer is, by and large, no. Not even those who had put their faith in him. Now, put their faith in him as who? Well, as the Savior, as the Messiah, the long-awaited one. But had they put in their faith in him and his death, burial, and resurrection? No, he hadn't even talked about it yet. When he started talking about it, they were shocked. They were shocked. Be it not so. You're, that's never going to happen to you. And so it's an interesting period in history of men and women of faith, that transitionary period between the Savior's here the kingdom's being offered, but yet at the same time, Christ knows how it's all going to turn out and that in fact, at the first advent, Christ is going to be the suffering servant. He'll return at a second advent as the conquering king. They both could be true at the same time. And so, in any event, Jesus says, you could have known this. It was prophesied. 
it could, you could find it in the Old Testament scriptures. I'd love to know exactly which passages he highlighted. Perhaps he just highlighted all the symbolism about how an innocent would have to take the place of the guilty, how the Messiah ultimately would be the Savior, the one who would be in a position to deal not only with the situation of the nation of Israel, but with man's sinfulness, the problem that man had with sin and how sin was estranging them from God and his holiness and how God was the only one who could undertake to make a way for the one who was hopeless apart from him, the one who could never do anything to resolve the debt of his sin apart from God providing a substitute, an innocent, to take the place of him, each individual man or woman, the guilty. But yet, so I'm not sure which passages it was exactly. It may have been about the Passover blood. It may have been about Cain and Abel. With, it may have been about Adam and Eve uh, with the skins being taken off an innocent lamb to co- animal to cover them. It doesn't say exactly the details there, but obviously an innocent died in the place of the guilty for them to be covered by the death of another on their behalf. And then on and on and on you could go about the symbolism, whether it's the door, one door to the ark, the door that was open and closed by, by Noah, and many, many more passages you could go to. And perhaps those are the ones that Jesus went to. Now turn to Acts chapter 17. I want to see, show you that by volume anyway, the most significant writer of the New Testament, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God ultimately is the author of Scripture, but the Apostle Paul, Acts 17, 2 through 3, let's see what he has to say about this idea that the suffering king, the suffering savior can be found in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, of course, this all leads up to the idea that Psalm 22 that we're going to look at tonight is one of the most profound prophecies as it relates to a messianic prophecy. And this is just one passage he might have gone to, just like Jesus might have gone to this passage. But Acts 17, verse 2, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, who is he reasoning to? Well, Jewish individuals about the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, he explained and he demonstrated that the Christ, now catch this, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. The Messiah. The Savior. The takeaway there, if God doesn't lie or ever stutter when he speaks, is that the Old Testament scriptures, by reasoning through them, you could have seen that there had to be a suffering king. It couldn't just be a conquering king. It had to be a suffering servant, a suffering king. And that's just kind of a little bit of a buildup because next to Isaiah 52, verse 13 through Isaiah 53, verse 12, Psalm 22 represents one of the most obvious Old Testament prophetic allusions to what Jesus Christ would ultimately experience as the suffering servant or the suffering king. And so that was a little bit of a long-winded explanation for Psalm 22 here, but that's what makes Psalm 22 so unique, is that there aren't a tremendous number of passages you could go to where you can see the suffering of Christ really clearly. 
And this is, this is one of them. So I wanted to take a little bit of time with that. Now, in terms of background, Psalm 22, of course, I've already said this. It's known as a messianic psalm. Why? Because there's all of this illusion and prophecy relating to the Christ in, found in Psalm 22, to Jesus Christ. And although some disagree, this psalm is prophetic, in my opinion, and it's fairly obvious that it's prophetic. But believe it or not, there's a whole... There's a whole branch, if you will, of people who think this is only literally talking about David and it's not prophetic about Christ, which I don't really know how you could take that position. And I'll give you at least three reasons here. One is that Matthew and John tell us that the casting of lots for Jesus' garments took place for this reason, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Now they then quote, though, verse 18 of Psalm 22. So, suggesting that David, the author of Psalms, was operating in the role or capacity of a prophet when he wrote these words. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, Matthew says that in Matthew 27, verse 35. John says that in John 19, verse 24, almost using the same words, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. So, Sounds pretty prophetic to me because God, who is the author of the words that Matthew said, God, who ultimately through his spirit was the author of what John says, he's saying this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Where was the prophecy found? Here in Psalm 22. Now the second argument, which I think is equally powerful, is that Jesus invites us to understand this psalm as prophetic by quoting verse 1 while dying on the cross. I mean, how does it get more powerful than that? Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that directly while he's dying for the sins of mankind on Calvary's tree. Certainly that's an invitation from my perspective to treat Psalm 22 as prophetic in nature. Now, the third reason is that the risen Christ claimed that the Psalms referred prophetically to him. He claimed that. And you're, I don't know if you're still in Luke 24, but if you're not, no big deal. I'll read it to you. But if you went a little bit further in that passage where we had looked at verses 25 through 27, but if you went to verse 44, this is the same conversation. And Jesus, it says, he, Jesus, said to them. Now, again, continued conversation. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. What happened to me, he says, had to happen because it was a fulfillment of prophetic things that were written about him in various places in the Old Testament, but including the Psalms. Now, can there be any doubt that when Jesus is referencing the parts of the Psalms that were referring to him, which prophetically had to then occur because they were prophetic in nature as far as talking about what would happen to the Messiah. Is there any doubt that he was referring, at least in part, to Psalm 22? And I think you'll see as we go through Psalm 22, there's no way to avoid that Psalm 22 clearly was prophetic in its relationship and its reference and its allusion to Jesus Christ. So there's the, there's the background. Now let's dive into these first 10 verses. There's this sense that the king, 
The suffering king is feeling forsaken. Now we know that literally that's going to be David, but we're going to see that obviously Jesus Christ experienced the same thing. Let's read these first 10 verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered, they trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shout out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Now there's a lot there. There's about one third of the psalm right there. We'll dive into it a little bit more here, but there's this sense that the king is feeling forsaken. Now, of course, the primary context, as I said, is actual suffering that David is experiencing. But the secondary takeaway is the prophetic allusion to Christ's first coming. Now, these verses, they contain two cycles of David expressing his anguish, followed by his testimony concerning where he eventually found hope in the face of the trials that he was going through. There's, so there's two cycles. Here's the anguish, here's the suffering, here's where I found hope. Here's the anguish, here's the suffering, here's where I found hope. So two times there's that cycle here in these first 10 verses. Now the first cycle we see in verses 1 through 5. The second cycle is found in verses 6 through 10. But starting with the first two verses, David again is first going to record three expressions of despair. Remember, it starts with despair, it ends with hope. Starts with despair, ends with hope. Two times through that pattern in these 10 verses. But here's three expressions of despair. Now, David is speaking to God directly, telling him exactly what he feels. Don't you see how unfiltered this is in these expressions that we see, these three expressions in the first two verses? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see how unfiltered that is? How David is just being real with God? Is that okay? Is it okay to be real with God? Apparently. Should we be a little bit less formal and a little bit more just living life with him and telling him what we're going through? Expressing what we're going through to him? Talking with him? Involving him? In a less... See, sometimes we have this mentality that you know, with God, you got to approach him in a very specific way because, well, I grew up praying only under certain circumstances, praying only in certain kinds of ways, praying only in certain kinds of places. But that's not what an ongoing relationship looks like with somebody. As you're walking and talking and living life with people, don't you just, without any warning, spit out some stuff? You, you just put it out there. That's what causes some problems too, by the way. It doesn't cause problems with God. In human relationships, when you don't filter, you're going to have some problems because it's probably better to think about what you say before you say it because some words when spoken, they can't be taken back, right? But not with God. If we'll do that with people, why wouldn't we 
do that with God who loves us so dearly, wants so intensely to have an intimate relationship with us, why would we treat him differently? But in any event, David shows us an example here of this sort of unfiltered way of approaching God. And and the question is, why not tell him? Why not? What's holding you back? What's preventing you from talking to God this way? You see, God knows what you're thinking anyway, so why not just tell him? My brother sent me a link to a song. I'm not necessarily recommending the song per se, but it's called Talking to Jesus. And it's just about how a kid learned how to pray by listening to his grandmother and then his mom just talk to Jesus like he was a friend. And then how through learning that himself, how the next generation, his children, learned how to talk to Jesus because they watched him do that. Now, our our children learn plenty of things from us, don't they? And in fairness, many of them are not helpful to them. But hopefully that can be offset to some extent by some of the things they could see in our witness, in our lives, in our testimony that would be useful to their spiritual well-being. Hopefully, instead of our children learning four-letter words from us, they could learn to pray from us. There's a fun song called I've Been Watching You. I said, son, where did you learn to talk like that? And of course, the son said, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? But then he later sees his son praying and he says, where'd you learn to pray like that? And the son says, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? Now, of course, one is and one isn't, but you get the point. So it's a neat little observation there just anyway about David's relationship with God. Now let's look at the phrases. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then why are you so far? And we'll insert the words away. And then why, oh my God, Am I crying out, and then insert kind of day and night, because both ideas are there. Though I'm crying day and night, why don't you hear me? So those are kind of the three, the free, three phrases. So we start with the first one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now David is expressing the common disconnect between one's theological understanding and his perception of present personal experience. He's expressing the disconnect between one's theological understanding and his perception of present personal experience. Now, there's a lot of words there. But the idea is there, do you think David really thinks God has forsaken him? I don't think in his core, like, theological knowledge part of his his brain, he thinks that. And we'll see that that's true as he speaks of God's faithfulness later on. So in the core part of his theological understanding, his intellect, he knows this isn't true. But he's speaking from a place of his perception about his personal, his present personal experience. And he's saying it feels or seems like you've forsaken me, God, given my circumstances that I'm facing right now. You see, David ultimately knows that this is inaccurate, yet he still feels this way. And when I thought about that, he knows it's inaccurate, but he still feels this way. That's why the believer must learn to walk by faith and not by sight, or walk by faith and not by feelings. Although feelings are useful and God-given, they are also deceptive and unreliable at times. They should not override principle-driven thinking. 
See, it's principle-driven, truth-driven thinking that is what we have to rely on when it comes to these kind of hard places in our lives. Now, we can be informed by our emotions. Again, they're God-given. Again, they're not bad in and of themselves, but they're not supposed to be the thing that's directing our perspective. Our perspective is supposed to be shaped by our thinking. Our thinking is supposed to be shaped by God's revealed truth, by the principles from God's Word. That's where we find our foundation. We don't find our foundation in our feelings, though our feelings, again, God-given, they're used to inform us, give us information about what we're going through, are useful at times, but they don't override principled thinking. Now, these words also represented the best means for Christ to communicate what he was experiencing on Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the case of Christ, he's not confused about God's love for, the Father's love for him. It's not a statement of confusion, it's a statement of agony. As he's suffering, this is the only time he, the first time he's cried out after all that he's gone through. This is his fourth statement on the cross. Go listen to that message about Christ's words on Calvary. This is the fourth statement. He hasn't said a word. He hasn't cried out in agony until there's a separation that takes place between him and his father that sort of breaks the fabric of the eternal relationship that he is all he'd ever known for all of eternity. And he cries out. It's a cry of anguish. It's a cry of, I want this to be over. I don't want to experience this. But because I love people so much, I'm willing to go through the equivalent of hell for them so that they can experience the life that can only be found in me. And that's how much the Savior loved you. That's how much he wants to live life with you. That's how much he cares about you. That's how faithful he is to provide for you. That's the kind of God you have. And we easily forget that. But he said one place you can see those words recorded, Matthew 27, verse 46. Now, in terms of the the other two phrases, why are you so far away? Isn't it true that you could know that God is always present? You could know that, like intellectually, theologically, you could know that that's true, but at the same time, your personal experience in the moment is you feel that God is distant and far away. Isn't that possible? Have you experienced that? There's nothing wrong with experiencing that. David's experiencing that. It's not the experience that's the problem. It's how am I going to respond when I am feeling that way? Where am I going to find my confidence, where's my hope going to come from when I find myself in this place, where this place where God seems distant? Same would be true of why, oh my God, despite me crying out day and night, do you not hear me? Why? In verse 2. You see, believers tend to associate the presence of trials with God's absence. Believers tend to associate the presence of trials with God's absence. Like somehow if God was near, I wouldn't be going through this, even though God promised you that in this life you would have troubles. That to serve him and live for him would involve, or what would come with that would be suffering. That we would suffer for Christ's sake if we were faithful to living a life that would bring him honor and glory. He promised that. So then why do we associate going through the things he said we would go through with he's now somehow distant or he's somehow now absent just because I'm going through that? 
And the reality is everyone can relate to that. The truth, though, is that God never leaves or forsakes his children regardless of the present circumstances they face. He promises to be with them, but he never promises to remove every dark valley or stormy sea. He says, when, David says this in Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not if I walk, when I walk through that valley, I have no fear because you are with me. See, God didn't say you won't go through that. He just says while you're going through that, you can be of good cheer. You can have no fear. You can be encouraged by knowing that God is with you. That's what he promised. It's so easy to twist that. You see, although God often provided physical deliverance for Israel, his primary concern for mankind has always been their spiritual deliverance. He never promised to deliver us from every hard thing. What he promised us is that in spite of those hard things, he would use them for our good to draw us nearer to him. So then you look at verses 3 through 5 here. David then, so the second half of our first cycle, here's the despair, here's the hope now. Here's the hope in verses 3 through 5. What is the hope there? But you are holy, Enthroned in the praises of Israel, we've been singing your praises. We've been singing songs even that sort of permanently put you in a place of residence where your character is on display. Now our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So where does David find his hope? By looking at God's character, looking at God's past faithfulness, despite his suffering. He found hope as a byproduct of reflecting on God's character and past faithfulness. You are holy, verse 3. My ancestors trusted in you. That's a little bit of a paraphrase of verse 4. You delivered them, verse 4. You answered them. Again, I'm paraphrasing verse 5. You never let them down. Another paraphrase of verse 5. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. What does that mean? They weren't ashamed because you didn't fail them. You never let them down. So they were not ashamed. Then David begins the second cycle of despair in verse 6. He goes back to the despair side of things, the suffering side of things. He says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they, meaning they, they talk about me. They run their mouths. That's another way of saying that. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So you see that cycle of despair again. And it represents the suffering brought about by being despised by others. The despair is brought about by David seeing that he's despised by others. No, I'll just comment on that. Man naturally wants to be accepted. Man naturally wants to be loved and well-regarded by others. There's nothing even necessarily wrong with that as long as that isn't the thing that's driving you. You know, if you're lusting after the approval of men, it's going to cause you all kinds of problems because God says, find your value, find your worth in my view of you. Quit trying to find your value and your worth and your purpose and your meaning in what other people think of you. That can be a real problem. 
That's something that people naturally would fall into because we're desperate for that attention, for that acceptance, for that love that comes from people. But God's saying, don't find it in people. Find it in me. So we're looking for the right thing, but in the wrong place. And David verbalizes the agony of being despised by men. I am a worm from the perspective of others. A reproach, despised, ridiculed, mocked for my faith is a paraphrase of verse 8. Being mocked for my faith. That's not pleasant. It it brought about despair in David's life to see that people despised him as a person, but they also despised his faith. Are there people in your life who despise your faith, mock you for your faith? There would be if you were speaking about your faith often enough because the world hates the things of faith. They hate him, so they naturally hate you. When you're standing bold for Jesus Christ and you're opening your mouth for the truth of the gospel, you're going to face pushback by people. And, and John, even in First John, says, don't worry about that. They hated me first. It's not you they really hate. It's, it's me they really hate. But we're promised that that will be man's natural response to the truth of God's word, specifically the gospel message, the message of hope, the message of salvation. But there's no denying the difficulty associated with being tr- treated this way. There's, there's no denying that it's hard to have people think badly of you, especially people you care about their opinion. It's no fun to be despised of men. And every person experiences some measure of that. There's no one who is immune from it. It's a universally relatable problem. But yet the hope is going to be found, we'll see again in this cycle, it's going to be found in Christ. It's going to be found in the case of David and his relationship, the faithfulness of God, the character of God. But this treatment that people are so averse to, by natural that you would be, it's no fun, but this, this mistreatment that people are so averse to, consider how Christ endured similar treatment. Now if you think about Isaiah 50. 3, verse 3, the other prominent passage about the suffering of the Messiah, it says he is despised and rejected by man, by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, meaning he came and we hid from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now Isaiah is writing, of course, to the nation of Israel, and that was the reaction and the response by and large, especially of the religious leaders, civil leaders of the nation of Israel to the coming of the Messiah. So when you think about that, can, can Christ relate to what you're dealing with when it comes to being despised by men? Does he, does he know firsthand what that might be like? The answer is he did anyway because he was a supernatural God who was all-knowing. There was nothing that he does not understand or know. But yet then in his humanity, in his unique God-man, God-became-man, the Messiah come to earth, the incarnation of Christ, he experienced it in his, the human side of things there. He experienced exactly what it is that you're struggling with and that David was struggling with. Now David, again, he's going to describe where he finds hope. Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. This idea that God knew us before we were even born. 
You made me trust while on my mother's breath. He's, breast. He's just talking about the idea that I've been associated with faith in you since I was young. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb, meaning I had parents that even pointed me in this direction of who you were, taught me about the things of you, and you have been my God. He says in verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help, and then you would assert, because the idea is clearly there, for there is none to help besides you. That's why he's saying, be not far. There's none to help besides you. But especially I want to focus on verses 9 and 10 because that's the end of this cycle. He's, David, of course, is using highly figurative and poetic language. We don't take this literally. But the idea there from verse 10 is, from my youth until now, you have been my God. And I, it made me think about various lyrics that I've heard recently. One song that I love, it's called Through All of It. It talks about this idea that I've, I've been living life with you. I didn't, it says, I have won, I have lost, I got it right sometimes, and sometimes I did not. Life's been a journey. I've seen joy, I've seen regret, but then he summarizes and he says, but you have been my God through all of it. And that's the kind of relationship that David had from a young child with God, and he had lived life with God so he could say, you've been my God through all of it. That song, Oceans, that we sang as a song of the month here, one of the lines in that song is, you've never failed and you won't start now. This idea of, I've seen your goodness. I've seen your faithful character. I know that you're an unfailing God and I don't expect you to start failing now. Another song called The Goodness of God that I heard more recently in the last year. It says, in all my life, you have been faithful in all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. And that's what David is doing here. I will sing of the goodness of God because all my life, you've been faithful. That's the takeaway from verses 9 and 10. That's what he's saying. You've always been, you're the only, you're the only source of help. So let me get into this section where David now talks about what it is to be the suffering king. Verse 11, we pick up through verse 18. It says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Now he's going to talk about the trouble. There is none to help except for you, is the, like I say, the implication there. But what are the troubles? What is the suffering of the king? And this is literally happening to David, though he's describing it figuratively in a poetic form. Verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Sounds like there's trouble. Yeah, in life there's trouble. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. As an aside, some, some think that may be a reference to even the crucifixion and having all your weight hanging on your, your arms eventually because your legs give out in any event. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. That doesn't seem too good. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. I'm starving. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, David 
now goes into this greater detail about the suffering that he faces. And he summarizes the difficulty he faces with the recognition that God's presence and provision is the key to overcoming his trials. I love that he starts with verse 11 where he's saying, there is no hope apart from you. You're the only help in time of trouble, so stay near to me, Lord. He starts with that and then he goes into verses 12 through 18, all of these descriptions of this trouble that he's facing in his life. You see, verse 12 through 13 summarized is just the enemies are fierce. Sounds like fierce enemies when he talks about these bulls and how they're like raging and roaring lions. And then if you keep going, you see, when we... I I have this section, verses 14 and 15, titled, When We Have Exhausted Our Hoarded Resources, The Father's Full Giving Is Only Begun. Here is a statement, a, a poetic description of what it would be like to have exhausted all of your human strength. All of your resources are gone, and the Father's full giving is only begun. But talk about a description of being exhausted. The resources are spent, the human resources, The Heavenly Father, though He uses life's trials to get us to this place. See, the idea here is I've got nothing left. I'm desperate. I've lost all hope. And for what purpose? What what does God want the climax of that line of thinking to be? I need you, Lord. That's the idea that David is driving at. When I can say I've got nothing left, I'm desperate, I've lost all hope, then I need you. That's so powerful because God uses absolute helplessness to reveal your need for dependence on him alone. It it takes desperation to get us there. It takes helplessness and hopelessness to get us there. Now, does God want us to make all of the choices that get us there? Not necessarily, but he wants to use that place of despair and desperation. He wants to use that to get our eyes on him, to teach us and instruct us in his ways that apart from me, you can do nothing. You're hopeless without me. You need me. Every hour you need me. Not sometimes, all of the time. Amen? And David's at that point. You can read it here in this poetic language. He's at that point. And so there's, you get these poetic expressions of, of oppression and suffering. And many of these descriptions exactly mirror what Christ endured. I mean, I think, think about these descriptions, especially in 16 through 18. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. There was a mob that was crying out what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones... You know, as you think about what Jesus endured over the period even leading up to the cross, he probably was famished. They look and stare at me as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so the Son of, God, a son of Man must be lifted up. He was lifted up in a place of prominence where the mob could stand and stare at him, including his own mother. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Can you see the suffering king in the Old Testament? 
Can you see the suffering servant? The Messiah as that in, in these words? He certainly can looking backwards. I'll tell you that. Now we get into the section where David moves to this posture where he says, in light of all that I'm facing, the adversaries in front of me, deliver me, Lord. Now let's look at verse 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Now how does he describe him? O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So as we look at that relatively small section, as we've observed in many of David's psalms, which effectively record his prayers, he now makes a direct petition to God for rescue, aid, salvation, and deliverance. You are my strength, he says. Help me. There's an exclamation mark in my Bible. Help me. Deliver me. Save me. See, each of those phrases that start those verses... You're my strength. Help me, deliver me, save me. Do you have that posture? Do you have that mentality? As you respond to the troubles and trials and hardships and difficulties and circumstances and trials in your life, is this your posture? Help me, deliver me, save me. And he says, God did. You have answered me. So again, David is writing these things, oftentimes writing these poems, penning. After he's gone through some kind of trial in his life, he's looking even backwards at it. And that's the takeaway. I was going through these adversities and the Lord, I cried out to him for deliverance and he, and he did. Now, this last section is David now becomes a living testimony. A living testimony of God's goodness. And so he says, pick up in verse 22, I will, based on what you've done in my life, I will now become this ambassador, this, I'll testify of your goodness. So I'll declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly will I praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. As the king of Israel, I'm going to be a living testimony. You know, we're, we're a living epistle. We're known of all men. A testimony to testify of the goodness of God. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. This is what I'm going to testify about. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he's talking about his own testimony here. God heard him. That's what I'm going to testify to. And what effect will that have? My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will, pray, I will pay my vows before those who hear him. But the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember. There's one byproduct. They'll remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Another outcome. For the kingdom of the Lord's is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. They'll be convinced of that. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. 
yet future, that he has done this. Meaning, my testimony of faith, as I testify about God and what he's done in my life, it'll pass on to the next generation and the next generation, those who haven't even been born yet. That's the byproduct of seeing God's goodness in your life and testifying about it. You see, he says, I will declare your name. I will praise you. My praise shall be of you. You see that several times in verses 22 through 26. You know, I will sing of the goodness of the Lord. Or the song, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. That's the idea. I'll be a living testimony. See, 2 Samuel 22.50, David is the one who's writing or penning a song then, there too. But he says in that, he says, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Meaning, here he's focused on praising God and what God's done as a living testimony to his own people, the nation of Israel. In 2250, he's talking about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give thanks to the Lord and sing his praises, sing praises to his name to even the nations around, to the Gentiles. You see, your testimony of God's grace, faithfulness, and goodness, it impacts others. You see that in verses 27 through 31, he gives several examples. But I want to focus on the last example he gives, verse 30 through 31. He says, a posterity, which means future descendants, shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. What? God's rescue, God's provision, God's care. God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who are yet to be born. What will they declare? That God is a God who rescues, a God who saves, a God who is able, a God who's there, a God who is present, a God who helps. That's what they'll declare. And certainly it should remind you of Psalm 145 verse 4, which I've been talking about a lot, how we have this idea where our mission is to pass along a sense of awe of God to the next generations. And the NLT says it in, interestingly how it says it. It says, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. That's how this thing keeps going is that as we see God's goodness, as, we, as God responds in the face of adversity in our lives and we see God's faithfulness, we see his character, we see his love, we see his mercy, we see his provision, we see what an awesome God he is and we stand in awe of him. Then naturally we live to testify to that as it relates to others. And then that legacy continues. So the suffering king. This psalm is special because it teaches future generations through David's example and also retells the future suffering, uh, sorry, also foretells the future suffering of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So it's special in that sense that there's two very specific things happening at the same time. One, you have this foreshadowing, foretelling, prophecy about Christ. But at the same time, it's special because it's David's way of showing how his relationship with God led to his testimony about God, led to future generations coming to know about the truth of God. What an encouraging reminder of how suffering and affliction should be navigated, how you should work your way through that. Your fellow believers can relate more closely than you would imagine to what you're going through because it should also encourage you to hear about this in David's life. It should encourage you to consider that your trials are not unique to man. Your trials are different perhaps or unique to you, but the trials themselves are not unique. 
David went through them. Every person in Scripture went through them. Every person in this church is going through them. So because of that, that's actually encouraging because you think about other people can relate probably more than I would give them credit for. And your Savior completely understands what you're going through. He can relate. He endured that suffering too. So then you think, what will my response be to all that? To cry out to him? To turn to him? To run to him? To cling to him? For help with whatever it is that you're going through. I hope that's the takeaway. That you would take this and you would say, I need to cry out to him, turn to him, run to him, and cling to him for help in my time of need because he's the only one who can help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for your truth and how encouraging you are to us as everyone has things and difficulties that they're facing. But pray that we would see that we shouldn't be focused on those difficulties. We should be focused on you. We can enjoy you even in the face of the storms that we're going through, the trials that we're going through, knowing that ultimately you're a God who cares You're a God who stays. You're a God who's faithful. You're a God who's able to undertake in our lives and to carry us through whatever it is that we're facing, all in a way that would ultimately draw us nearer to you, be for our eternal benefit, even if those trials are long-lasting and difficult in the present. Pray that we could have that eternal focus and that eternal perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.